target practice. We've been talking three weeks about target practice with the target being finding God's will for our lives. So did you think we were going to get through a series on God's will without talking about love? I mean, it would be an impossibility for us to think about serving God and being in his will without discussing and identifying that we need to be people who demonstrate the love of God that he has so richly demonstrated to us. Before we get into that totally, does anybody remember what our series truth has been? Week after week, we've been saying our series truth on target practice and finding God's will for our life. Anybody remembering? Walk with God today to find his will for tomorrow. Good job. Good job. It's sinking in that repetition over and over again. I hope by the end of it, are going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Walk with God today to find his will for tomorrow because that is key. The key is walking with God today. And I listed in your note sheet the uh, principles from our first three weeks. And today I want to add this one, which really comes as no surprise to us because the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. Therefore, if God is love, one of the things that God wants us to do, part of his will for us today in every day, is that we would show his love. So if you will, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, and today we're going to see how Joseph, our key figure we've been looking at for the last few weeks, how he demonstrated the love of God, even though the opportunity to not show God's love and to take revenge was readily available for Joseph. But before we fully get into the story today, I want to note that Joseph's story, as do other individuals throughout Scripture, kind of turns people's theology about God on its ear sometimes. You see, some people have taken the idea that God is love. They've taken that to mean that God is a kind-hearted, gentle grandfather type who basically lets his children get away with murder or uh, or who does nothing but pour out unlimited blessings on his children, which kind of makes God more like a genie than the God that he really is uh, that we see described in Scripture. Uh, Shelly and I were away uh, out of town one night, and the kids were staying with the grandparents, and we called, and we were talking on the phone, and Caleb, I think he was about three or four at that time, but I remember him saying, Mom, Mamma, let us have Cheetos and Mountain Dew. And the conversation ended at that point, because I think Mamma quickly grabbed the phone out of Caleb's hands, if memory serves me correctly. But we kind of get this thought of God is love, and people think that following him means all of our paths are straight and the road is smooth and we have no hardship or difficulties in life because a loving God wouldn't want his children to suffer, would he? A loving God wouldn't want his children to hurt, or a loving God wouldn't want his children to go through trying circumstances. So I think a big question for us becomes, is God's will safe? Is God's will safe? And some people would say yes. And you may have heard people say, the safest place you can be is in the center of God's will. And so many people have bought into this idea. uh, And as a result, many believers, and particularly many believers in the American church, don't risk much. Well, let me rephrase. We really don't risk anything for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Erwin McManus had a great quote. I love what he says. He says, the center of God's will is not a safe place, but the most dangerous place in the world because God fears nothing and no one. And if you're with a person who's fearless, have they ever scared you to death? 
You ever ridden with a person who's fearless, has no fear of dying? You're thinking, dude, get me out of here, all right? And so God fears no one and no thing. So there are going to be some, some, some dangerous times in walking with the Lord. David Platt in his book Radical makes this statement. We think if it's dangerous, God must not be in it. If it's risky, it's unsafe. If it's costly, it must not be God's will. But what if these factors are actually the criteria by which we determine if something is God's will? What if the center of God's will is in reality the most unsafe place for us to be? Jesus told us that as a result of following him, we would have hardships. We would experience difficulties. And he said, you will be persecuted Because you call on my name and because you follow after me. I mean, if God's will is safe and easy and without hardships, how do we explain Joseph's 13 years as a slave and as a prisoner? Did God not love him for those 13 years? Was he being punished for something in his life? Was God taking a nap? You know, what happened for those 13 years? What about the life of Job? I mean, Job lost everything, his family, his possessions, his health. I mean, how easy and carefree was Job's life? Many of the disciples in the New Testament and the early believers were persecuted for their faith. In Acts chapter 5, we're told that some of them were arrested. They were flogged, which means they were beaten uh, with whips and with cords. They were beaten, and they were told to stop speaking the name of Jesus. And Acts chapter 5 verse 41 says this, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, the name being the name of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews chapter 11 tells the story of other believers. These are people in the hall of faith, recognized for their faithfulness and their obedience to God. And it says this about them. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These were faithful believers, children loved by their heavenly father. So how do you reconcile a safe in the center of God's will theology with their stories, with what we see fleshed out in Scripture. The Voice of the Martyr. Some of you may be familiar with their ministry and their advocacy for Christians and believers around the world. Uh, on their website, that they chronicle day after day accounts of Christians around the world in 2010. I looked this week for dates in 2010 where Christians are suffering and losing their lives around the world today for the sake of Jesus Christ and their witness and their faithfulness to him. This morning I was on, uh, on a website and saw where, where uh, believers in Afghanistan had been on a medical mission trip, not carrying uh, guns and weapons of any kind, but medical supplies were killed, were gunned down because they were Christians. And the individuals there thought they were sharing their faith. And so we see this taking place around the world, people dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. And then here in America, we talk to Christians about their sacrifice, 
about their commitment to Jesus Christ. And we, we, we put the pinnacle of, hey, here, your sacrifice, your commitment. Let's just talk about church attendance. Are you going regularly to worship, to grow, to be discipled, to fellowship with other believers? And you know what Christians in America are saying? That they can't live up to this sacrifice? Oh, we're just so tired. And Sunday is the only day we have to sleep in. So hard. Well, we just, we just needed family time because we've been just running so much. And we've been so busy. So we just needed a day to rest with our family. And this is my personal favorite. We had to go grocery shopping on Sunday morning because we had Little League all day on Saturday and all day again on Sunday afternoon. So if we didn't go on Sunday morning, we weren't going to get our groceries and get stuff ready for when the week started back on Monday. I laugh to keep from crying. That I heard that story. People are dying for Jesus Christ. And we can't even roll out of bed. And drive five minutes to get to church. The world doesn't need safe Christians. We don't need safe Christians. The world needs sold out. Fully surrendered. Fully devoted. Followers of Jesus Christ. Who are willing to put what the Bible teaches into practice. And to sacrifice. And to surrender and to give their every last resource, their every last talent, their very own lives if necessary for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the only hope the world has. That's what the world needs. That's who we need to be. And we say, well, what can bring about that kind of revival? What can bring that spiritual awakening in the lives of God's people? What can move people to give and to live and to show that kind of passion and zeal for the cause of Jesus Christ, for the gospel which he came to proclaim? The answer is love. The answer is our love is what can move us to do those things. Because love is the most powerful, the most consuming, the most motivating force known to mankind. It's our love that will move us to be on mission, to be fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 42, and I want you to see how God's love displayed its power in Joseph's life. And we see from Joseph that the love of God gives us the power to overcome and control every other human emotion. And I'm convinced that is the number one challenge to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's our emotions, how we feel about something or how we feel and we talk ourselves into something. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But the love of God gives us the power to overcome and control every other human emotion. Whether that's fear, whether it's anger, whether it's our insecurity, whether it's feelings of despair or hopelessness, anything else, God's love can help us overcome those emotions. And not only can God's love help us overcome those things within us, it can flow through us into the hearts and lives of other people so that they can experience that same power of God's love working and transforming them. You see, God's love doesn't just transform us. It transforms those around us as we display and as we show God's love. Now, we're not going to have time this morning to read the entire story, but I encourage you when you get a chance to read Genesis chapter 42 through 46. It is a fascinating story. Uh, It's quite humorous at points, as a matter of fact, reading through the story of how Joseph interacted with his brothers. But when we last left the story of Joseph, he was promoted to second in command in all of Egypt. 
I want you to fast forward nine years in that story. The seven years of great abundance came, and Joseph in those seven years collected one-fifth of all the crop and all the produce that was, uh, that was produced in the, and grown in the land of Egypt. And then when the famine hit, the whole world, as the book of Genesis started, it hit with a vengeance. And the Bible tells us that Joseph had stored so much grain that he stopped counting it. And in Genesis 42, he begins to sell it back to the people who are hit by the famine and can't grow grain, can't grow their own food. And Jacob, in chapter 42, tells his sons, go to Egypt and buy grain. I heard they have plenty of it, and they're selling it to people there. Now, apparently, the famine was a time when things were really, really boring because all 10 of J- Jacob's sons said, hey, we want to go. Yeah, we'll go, we'll go buy grain and bring it back. I mean, that's like going to the grocery store. I mean, you got 10 kids and I was like, yeah, we'll go to the grocery store for you. Okay, it was a really, really dull time in their lives. Only Benjamin, who was Joseph's full brother and the only living son of Rachel, as far as Jacob knew, uh, stayed behind in the land of Canaan. And you see, Jacob was very protective of Benjamin. He didn't want anything to happen to him because he had already lost Joseph and he didn't want to lose his other son of his most beloved wife. And so the brothers come to Egypt and they stand before Joseph to purchase their grain. And they didn't recognize him, but he, however, did recognize them. So he's speaking through an interpreter and he accuses them of being spies who've come to scout out the land. And they say, no, 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 we're not spies. We, we are 10 of 12 brothers from the land of Canaan. One brother is home and one brother is no more. We're all part of one family. Well, Joseph put on the, the guys here like he didn't believe them. And he had them tossed in prison for a couple of days. And he devised a plan to test his brothers. He had Simeon, one of the brothers, bound and thrown back into prison. He told the remaining nine, you go back to Canaan, bring me your other brother. When he gets here, I'll know that you are all brothers from the same family, and then I'll let you go. That would prove that their story was true, even though Joseph knew that their story was true. So look at Genesis chapter 42. I want you to see the guilt these men are carrying around in their lives and the emotions that that have overwhelmed them for a number of years. Verse 21 says, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Now this is at least 22 years. Joseph spent 13 years in slavery. There were seven years of prosperity in Egypt and now two years into the famine. This is at least 22 years from the time that they sold Joseph into slavery. And when they had adversity and difficulty come their way, their first thought is God is punishing us because we didn't rescue our brother. I mean, they're carrying this guilt and this remorse with them all of this time. And so they admitted their guilt And Joseph heard everything because he could speak Hebrew even though they didn't know he could speak Hebrew. And in my study this week, I happened across an obscure ancient Hebrew text. And in my study, it revealed that there's been a word left out of our English translation in verse 22. Verse 22 should read like this. And Reuben answered them. And Reuben answered them. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But, and here's the word that that we left out, the English translation. But, no, you did not listen. 
Okay, maybe it really wasn't there. But boy, the tone of his voice, that's what it says, right? But no, you did not listen to me when I tried to, to, to get you to rescue him. He says, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And at this point, the Bible tells us Joseph left their, their presence because his emotions were so strong. They overcame him. He wept because he saw their remorse and he heard that one of his brothers had actually tried to rescue him all those many years ago. And so he, he, he was just so overcome with emotion at this, he had to get away from their presence for them to go, what's wrong with this ruler? He's a basket case. And why is he all weepy and sad and stuff? And so he dismissed himself, uh, and he came back, and he sent the nine brothers on. Now, to make a long story not as long, uh, J- Jacob refused to let Benjamin go to Egypt because he was afraid of losing him. But the food ran out again because this famine lasted a long time. So reluctantly... He let Benjamin go, but he pleaded with the other brothers, keep him safe. So as they arrived back in Egypt, Joseph met with them and had another emotional outburst at seeing his brother now and hearing more stories of his father. So he brings them to his home and they have this fabulous meal and he finds out more about their father and about their homeland. And then then Joseph set them up for one last test. He had them gather their stuff. He gave them grain like they had purchased and were going to head back to the land of Canaan. And he told his servants to smuggle a silver cup into Benjamin's bag, his brother's bag. So they load up and they head back toward the land of Canaan. And they're they're a little ways out of town. And and Joseph sends his uh, officer, sends his servants to go and arrest them and bring them back for having stolen the silver cup. Now, the test was this. Are these scoundrels going to stand up and do the right thing for their other half-brother? Or, because now he's the favored son and his dad's been so protective of him, are they going to say, dude, it's every man for himself and let's just leave him to face the fate that he's going to face with this grumpy ruler down here in Egypt? So what's going to be their decision? Are they going to turn their backs on him too? Or have they changed and did they learn their lesson and now they stand with their brother? Will they all go back? And when they get there, Joseph says, I'll let everyone go except Benjamin. He's the one who stole my cup. So he's going to have to stay for his crime. The rest of you are free to go. But the brothers wouldn't go. Judah interceded on behalf of his brother Benjamin. And he told Joseph the story of their heartbroken father and how protective he had been because this was the the last living son of his beloved wife. And, And Judah had promised to watch over him and to bring him home safely. And he pleaded with Joseph. He said, let me take his place. Let him go back to his father. I will stay and be your prisoner because he said he couldn't imagine the grief his father would experience if they returned without him. In verse 34... He says this, For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. They passed the test. They passed the test. They were showing love for their brother finally. And at this point, Joseph couldn't hold it together any longer. He dismissed all of his Egyptian servants. And through sobbing and and many, many tears, he told his brothers who he was. And in Genesis Chapter 46, I'm sorry, 45. Genesis 45. In verse 4, he said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
And at the end of verse 7, he, or sorry, the first 8, he says this. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So you see Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers and his recognition that you intended evil, you intended harm, but God has brought good out of this situation. Now, we're going to revisit this part of the story next week and talk a little bit, ma- a little bit more about another component of God's will in our lives. But today, I want you to see how God's love had so radically changed Joseph's life that he could stave off his human emotions and show the love and forgiveness of God instead of reacting out of the flesh and in his human uh, emotions. Because had Joseph reacted in the flesh, how might the story have ended? Well, if Joseph hadn't taken every thought captive to make it obedient to to God, which is what Paul tells us to do in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, if he hadn't taken those thoughts and taken those emotions captive and said, no, I'm not going to respond in this way, I think the Bible would have had three and a half less chapters in it. Because Genesis 42, 7 would have read like this, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them and killed them. And it would have taken out three and a half chapters. And then he moved his father to Egypt to to be able to care for him and provide for future generations. I mean, that's what human emotions would have done in this story, right? I mean, you think about the power and the influence that's here. That's what would have taken place. But we see the love of God moving in Joseph's life that he could forgive these brothers, these very ones who had sold him into slavery with these callous, cold hearts. And this love that we see in Joseph's life is the love of God that every follower of Christ should yearn for in his or her life. Because an all-consuming love for God lets the Holy Spirit rule and reign in every area of our lives instead of the worldly counterfeit types of love that we talk ourselves into all the time. I mean, we do this on a regular basis. We fall, quote-unquote, in love with something. And it's that imitation, that worldly, that counterfeit-type love, but we fall in love with it. And you know what we do? Our hearts and our emotions say, I want this, I desire this. And we begin to look after and long for these things in our emotions and in our hearts. And then we tell our brains to come up with excuses and rationalizations as to why we need this. Now, if you don't believe me, then let's just have a couple of examples and let's talk through what this looks like in our lives. How many of you have closets full of clothes? Many of which you have not worn for many, many weeks or months, shall we say. Yet how many of you in the last two weeks bought yourself a new piece of clothing or a new outfit of some kind? How many of you plan on doing that in the course of the next month that's upcoming? Why do we do that? We've got plenty of clothes that we don't even wear, yet we're all the time going and buying new stuff. Why do we do that? Because we like the way those new clothes make us feel. We feel stylish and trendy and good-looking and handsome, so we're going to get us some new clothes, aren't we? Yeah, we get these new clothes. And then why do we buy these new clothes? I like it. I want it. Brain, give me a reason. Ooh, it's on sale. 10% off. I may not see these prices again for a whole nother decade. I better get this thing. Or I got a pair of shoes at home that are going to go perfect with this outfit. Don't even get me started on shoes and buying outfits to to, to go with that. So so we do this over and over again. How many of you have ever um, upgraded or accidentally dropped a phone to get the newer model phone that may be out there? Or what about this one? We, We want a new vehicle. 
And so we say, oh, man, I really like that vehicle, that color, that style. Oh, I really like that. Well, why would I get that? Brain, tell me why I need that. Ooh, I can get two more miles per gallon out of that bad boy. I can go from 11 to 13 miles per gallon. Woo, sign me up. All the money I'm going to save on getting this thing. Or then we see all these problems with our current vehicle. All that bulb in the back is turned on. When I open the door, the light doesn't come on anymore. I got to get me a new vehicle because the bulb doesn't work anymore. And we have all these problems with things. See, our heart falls in love with something. And then our minds come up with reasons that it's okay to pursue this thing. That's what happens when we put our emotions in the driver's seat. Oh, and those are some funny things. We laugh about those. But it's tragic. What causes men and women to give up on their marriage and walk away? I just don't love them anymore. What leads men and women into affairs in their workplace or with neighbors or with friends? They make me feel like my spouse doesn't. What about alcohol? drug addiction that's wreaking havoc in our society and people's lives. Well, it just takes the edge off. There's just so much going on. It just kind of numbs me because I don't want to feel that pain any longer. Our heart, our emotions fall in love and lead us into these things and our brain says, yeah, it's okay. We'll find a reason to make it okay. Joseph is the second most powerful man in the known world at this time. At his command, the ten men standing before him could have been executed on the spot, and no one in Egypt would have even batted an eye. And if anyone had said, Joseph, why did you kill those ten men? I mean, he could have made up a story if he wanted to, or he could have simply just told the truth and said, let me tell you who these scoundrels were. Let me tell you what they did to me all these years ago. And people would have said, I can see why you did that. Someone may have even built their theology around it and said, you know what? Maybe God placed you where you are so that you could take your revenge out on those dirt bags. God is the one who brought you here so you could kill them. No one would have thought twice about him taking revenge on his brothers. But he didn't do it. He let the love of God rule in his heart and he forgave his brothers. The sermon title this morning is Love is the Problem. And I titled it that because love is the problem. We don't love the right things. We don't love the things of God. That's our problem. We love the things of the flesh. We love the things of the world. We don't love obedience to God's word over the lure and the temporary pleasure of sin that we experience in our flesh. We don't love the will of God more than the praise of men or the status that our cars or our houses represent or the comfort and the ease that our material lifestyle brings to our lives. We don't love the gospel enough to get over our personal discomfort in telling others how they can be saved. And we don't love the gospel enough uh, to help spread it and to make time and financial and lifestyle sacrifices so that people can hear the name of Jesus Christ. So love is the problem. We're not loving the right things. But love is also the answer when we learn to love the right things. When we seek after and try to follow after the things of God, we need to learn to love the right things. 
we have grown too safe in our theology. Because God's call upon our lives isn't to safety. It's to sacrifice. It's to surrender. It's to give up every right and every claim to ourselves and to take the gospel of Jesus Christ in its place, regardless of what that may cost us in the end. Because ultimately, anything that we may lose is nothing of value anyway because of the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God showed us the most incredible picture of his own love by sending his son into the world to die in our place. And Jesus wrestled with this same thing that we wrestle with, our emotions and our will and our flesh over seeking after God's will in the garden before his arrest and his betrayal. Jesus prayed this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Because here's the thing. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what a month from now holds. And we're afraid of those things. We fear what, we may, what it may cost us to follow after Christ. Jesus knew what he was facing. The pain and the suffering and the beatings and the crucifixion. and all. He knew what lay ahead. And he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But his love for God and for the things of God, just as we saw with Joseph, trumped his own will, his own desires, his own plans and he made his request but then he added nevertheless not my will but yours be done that should be our heart that should be our desire these things are going to wage war with us we're going to be pulled and we're going to have all these battles but we need to pause and stop and reflect God not my will but your will be done My challenge to you this morning is that you would be absolutely overwhelmed with the love of God in your life. I pray that you will recognize how incredibly consuming God's love is for you. And I pray that if you've never received the love of God by surrendering your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, that today will be the day that you receive his gift of salvation. Jesus' death is God's ultimate expression of, of his love for us. He died in your place so that you could be one of God's children. You go from being an enemy of God to a child of God through Jesus Christ. That's how much God loves you and he expressed that love through Christ. And I pray today that you will allow the love of God to rule and reign in your life so completely that every emotion, that every sin that sets itself before you to pull you away from the things of God will absolutely repulse you and cause you to draw closer to God and to draw from his strength and to resist that temptation instead of allowing your brain the opportunity to try and create excuses and to rationalizations as to why it's okay. Because I want to tell you something. Your brain will find a way to tell you it's okay. It's not that big a deal. You deserve this. But I pray that because of God's love in your life, you'll be repulsed away from those things and closer to God and your relationship with him.